somewhat better at that. Um, all right, so we've been on this series, we've been walking through kind of the basic theology of Spirit Chapel. And we are now past the point where we talked about can we honestly, realistically believe that there is a God, He cares about us, He's moral, He's good. And if we do believe there is one God, can we also believe that our God is that God and our religion is the right religion? We've been through all that. Last week then we talked about the first part of what we call the Trinity, and that's God the Father. So that was last week, and it's probably not going to surprise anybody this week. We're going to take the next part of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, and next week, yep, will be uh, God the Holy Spirit. So we're going we're to be there. Before I get deep into kind of talking about Jesus, which is always easy for me to do, and I think every preacher should be, this should be an easy kind of a sermon, I want to talk about something you wouldn't expect me to go to. I want to give you all some fighting lessons. So um, I don't know if anybody's ever taken boxing. Some of you, I think, have. But there are, this is a picture of Muhammad Ali, uh, considered one of the greatest boxers of all time, using what boxers will tell you is the most important punch in the boxer's arsenal. It's called a jab. Now, what's interesting about the jab is that boxers view it so highly when no one, I don't think, ever in the history of the world has been knocked out by a jab. There's two punches that you want to land that knock somebody out, a right cross or an uppercut. So why is the jab, which is usually if you're a boxer, your left hand, if you're a right-handed boxer, why is the jab so important? Well, it's because the jab sets up the right cross and the uppercut. Without the jab, you're never going to land unless the person's really stupid. If it's really stupid, then you can land it without it. But usually what you're doing is using the jab. And what you're doing with the jab is you're attacking the strength of your opponent. And you're doing it deliberately. You're not putting an all-out attack there. You're just jabbing. You're irritating them. You're, you're chipping away at the strongest defense. And then eventually, there'll become an opening. And when there's an opening, that's when you come across with the right cross to put them out. That's how fighting works. Now, that's how fighting works on an individual level. That's also how fighting works at a group level, in an army. If your enemy has a stronghold, you don't just blast at it. You chip away at it slowly because you're afraid of the casualties that you would experience if you went after it. And that's the way it works like in Roman warfare. If you've watched the, the, you know, the old you know, movies of now, they have all these movies with catapults and all that stuff. And you'll see them. They're attacking. They're chipping away at the defense, the stronghold. They don't go just flat out there and talk. Now, now you can't win a war with a catapult. You can't. You need the army to go over the walls once they're breached. But you have to slowly break down the stronghold. I guess why I'm telling you all that is because we are involved in spiritual warfare and it's a little frustrating because spiritual warfare is invisible. And it's like, you know, we're being attacked, we're being hit, and we can't see the person who's hitting us. This is how we feel. It's like, well, they're always hitting me. I don't know where it's coming from. Well, the point is, even if we're talking about spiritual warfare, we can still know what the enemy considers our strength and what the enemy considers our weakness by where the enemy attacks and how. So if the attack is coming constantly, 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 like a jab, 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 not a heart attack, but just jabbing away, then that should tell you that the enemy considers that your stronghold. That's the strongest part of, 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 of your fortress. And they're jabbing at it because they can't come at it with everything, but they want to wear it down. Since the time the Christian church began, 2,000 plus years ago, by far and away, the one thing the devil has chipped out more than anything else is the name of Jesus Christ. He's constantly attacking Jesus Christ and specifically attacking the name of Jesus Christ. 
And, you know, you know this because Jesus Christ is the only person in a religious circle whose name has become, uh, you know, a swear word, basically. You know, it's like people will use Jesus' name, like, oh, Jesus. You'll never hear him say Buddha, Muhammad, you know, or, or, or um, I don't know, who, Shiva. I don't know all the Hindu gods. But you never hear them use that, Muhammad. You don't hear them use somebody else's name. It's always Jesus' name. They're always making fun of Jesus' name. They put an H in there. They're always at Christ this and Jesus that. And they're using it, right? They're using it as though it's a swear word. Why? Because the devil's trying to attack the name of Jesus and make it common. And, and you know it's true because it's the only name in all of the world that that happens to. It's always Jesus' name. It's always Jesus' name. The devil attacks Jesus' name because this, if he makes it commonplace, if you start thinking it doesn't really matter, the name of Jesus doesn't matter. It's just a swear word, or it's just something that your dad sticks in between something before he starts swear words. You know, that's all it is. If it's just commonplace, then you will never call on it when you're in time of trouble. And that's why the devil attacks the name of Jesus, because if it doesn't mean anything to you, then you'll never reach out to it when you're in trouble. And the devil knows exactly how powerful the name of Jesus is when it is spoken by a believer. And he's afraid of it. That is the strength of the church is the name of Jesus. The strength of the church is Jesus Christ. And so he attacks at it by chipping away at it. He doesn't dare go at it. No, no, he starts chipping away at it. Here's the thing that has me really sad today. Um, it's working. It's really working. If you look at the Christian church today, the name of Jesus has slowly been erased. It's astonishing to me. In my lifetime, this has happened. It's not a very long time. I know I've seen old but it's not a very long time. In my lifetime, I have seen this happen where the name of Jesus has slowly become vanished from the Christian church. I'll prove it. Uh, here's a thing called CCLI. CCLI, for those of you who don't know it, it's like copyright for Christian music. I kind of have a bit of a theological problem with this, but uh, basically, in order to sing the songs we sang here today and be able to play them in this church, we pay a license for the copyrighted music to CCLI. They're an organization that does this. Now, we don't pay very much because it's based on church size. I think those guys get a nickel from us or something. It's not a lot of money. But it's still like, I don't know, David ever got copyrights on, on his psalms. You know, it's like bugs me a little bit. But anyway, but CCLI tracks because as every church, what they're singing, everything is reported. If you have a CCL license, you're supposed to tell them what you're singing. Uh, you have to if you're of a certain size because they have to distribute that money then that you pay them to all the artists. That's how these Christian artists make money. Uh, anyway, so here is, I just went, I pulled a random, I do this from time to time. I pulled a top 10 list uh, from CCLI. These are the top 10 most played songs in Christian churches in America for the past two months. Um, and of them, there are exactly two songs that are about Jesus, two. That's 20% of the songs being sung in a name, in church, named after Jesus Christ, because we're Christians, named after Jesus Christ, 20% of the songs were about Jesus. One of the other songs mentioned him one time, has his name in it one time. This is actually better than I usually get. When I randomly pull them, it's usually 10%. It's usually one in 10. That means every week, because you don't do 10 songs in a week. Every week, uh, in fact, three weeks out of a month, people are, churches are going and singing songs and Jesus' name is never mentioned. Our praise worship in a Jesus' church never mentions his name for three weeks in a row. I don't know about you, but that's astonishing to me. 
It never would have happened in my, in my, my dad's church. It would never happened, ever, ever, ever. And I, this is a really good time for me to pull this out because I knew we'd have a, a, a playlist stack full of Jesus stuff this week because we're preaching about Jesus. And in fact, last week we didn't. We preached about uh, God, the Father, and uh, we still had one song in the playlist about Jesus, you know. And Victoria looked at us and said, well, that doesn't really fit the sermon. I said, no, but it fits the church. You know, Jesus church, folks. We, we should have his name being used here. And, and so we, we, know, we know this is important. The Bible tells us important. Therefore, God has highly exalted his son. He's given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' name is supposed to be blessed. It's supposed to be kept holy and reverent. Instead, we use it as a punchline of jokes in this culture today. I mean, we are a post-Christian nation, no question about that. But this is what's going on right now in the Christian church. The church itself has taken it out. And if you ask people this, they'll tell you it's because we're trying to make the church more approachable to people who don't go to church. And Jesus Christ, you know, (laughs) he might offend people, which is kind of the purpose of Jesus Christ. But anyway, the other thing that devil attacks, and he does this all the time too, is he attacks the cross of Jesus. <clears throat> he wants you to think the cross is something you should be embarrassed about. Or again, it's commonplace and doesn't matter. I remember when I was young, <clears throat> I, when I saw Madonna, first of all, she's named Madonna, that's weird, uh, singing a song on stage wearing black lingerie and a black cross. And I thought, okay, the cross is in trouble in this society. If that's okay, you know. But I guess it's not really Madonna. I mean, you can go back further than that. You know, the Nazis had a broken cross, and then and before them, World War One, the Germans put the cross on their warplanes and warships. So, and then you go back before that, you have the Crusaders putting a cross on their shield. So I guess people have always kind of used the cross as sort of a let's ward off evil, you know, spirits kind of a thing, and said what it really is, which is a symbol of God's victory over death. And what has happened again because of this, because of the attacks on the cross, the Christian church has gotten rid of the cross. Uh, there are two people in our congregation who kind of go out and lead worship other places. Um, and they've been around, and I, I had a conversation with both of them. And both of them said, you know, we go into churches all the time, and there's no cross. Not just on the stage. There's no cross in the church. In fact, churches that used to have the cross have redone their logo recently, and the cross has gone from the logo even. It's like a church of what? You know, they don't even call themselves a church anymore. They, you know, they have cool names. Um, but you know, it, it's, you know, elevation or, you know, amplify or, you know, something always moving up. And, but, but it's never, ever church, anything. You know, they have to look in the letterhead to see that. And the cross is gone. We don't have the cross anymore. And some people say, well, that's okay because the cross doesn't necessarily have to be a symbol of the Christian church. It really wasn't a symbol of the Christian church in the early church, and that's true. The fish was a symbol in the early days because they used that as a symbol when they were underground to show people where to go, where the, uh, where, where, where the, the meeting would be. They'd draw a fish, and they'd point it in that direction. It was this hidden sign. <laughs> have you ever seen the hobos? They do that. You know, they're, they're moving along. They have little signs, little tiny things they put in front of houses to let people know if they can get a food there or something. That's kind of well-known. Uh, well, the Christians invented that. That was before the hobos, because before trains. The Christians would draw a fish and say, oh, you know, secret, you don't know, because if people find out, they'll kill us, but there's going to be a meeting there, and they'll point it that way. Um, but 
very quickly the church adopted the cross as a symbol of Jesus. And the reason why is because Jesus told us it was important. In John, he says this, judgments upon this world and the rule of the world, that's the devil, will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He's talking about the crucifixion. He says, my body being nailed across and lifted up will draw all men to me. That is the last thing the devil wants to say. So the devil wants the name of Jesus out of the church and wants the cross of Jesus out of the church. And I hate to tell you this, the devil's winning. Because right now the American Christian church anyway is pretty pathetic. A lot of them don't mention Jesus. We talk about God a lot. Oh, we talk about God. Uh, Rick Saccone was uh, telling me you know, one of the last things he did when he was still our representative was he got the In God We Trust motto of the state you know, endorsed. And, and uh, he was going around trying to get support for this. And he was telling me about all the resistance he was getting to it. I said, what for? It's God. We don't even name God. Just in God, some God we trust. Everybody trusts in a God. <laughs> Maybe you just trust yourself. Guess what? You're your God. You know, everybody trusts in God. I, I can't imagine why anybody would be upset with that. But, you know, people just get upset about everything. But it's like, it's not Jesus. It's not we're naming Jesus. I don't even understand the importance. But, boy, the church is real good at naming God. We talk about God. We even talk about the Spirit. But we don't talk about Jesus so much. You know, we kind of leave that back because we want to make it very easy for people to approach us. And Jesus says, well, this is how they should approach us. They should see me lifted up. And if they see me lifted up, they'll come. And if they don't come to this, it doesn't matter why they're here. It doesn't matter if they're here, if they're not here to see Jesus. It's just plain and simple. Jesus is all that really matters uh, in this church. Now, when we started Spirit Chapel, um, most churches, they have this big plan and they get this plan put together. We have a lot of people. Usually get planted by another organization. Usually you have a, a preacher who's much cooler and hipper than me leading it. And you get about 60 people and you start this church and they always have a cool name and they always have a scripture that God gave them to start the church with. And somebody asked me once, do, do we have that? You know, what's our scripture? And I thought, oh boy, you guys gave me way too much credit. Let me tell you how Spirit Chapel got started, because it's not that way. Uh, it wasn't even my idea. I fought against it for six months. And when I finally said yes, I went to God and said, okay, on these conditions. That was uh, how Spirit Chapel got open. There was no scripture involved. Um, and so I, that kind of bothered me that we should have scripture. You know, we, we should have, we should have scripture. And we, nev we never did until recently, uh, about two months ago, uh, we, I was walking around this building we're talking about, and I've been walking around it and praying about it for about six years, off and on, but I started getting real serious about it. And I thought, you know, why I need, we need this building. We need to get it somehow. And so I'll I tried everything I could think of to uh, go after it in a spiritual world, you know. So I said, I'll march around it and pray seven days. Not for a full seven days. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have the time off like that. But I'd walk around it and pray one day and say, you know, all seven days. Nothing happened, you know. So then I'll pray this. I pray that. I just everything you could imagine. Pleading, begging, claiming, praising, you know, whatever. Everything, everything. It was, nothing was moving. Nothing was moving. Nothing was moving. Uh, and then I had this idea that I was going to actually put my hands on the doors that were locked and start praying for it. I just put my hands on the door and pray. And so I started doing that, and I thought I was getting closer to, the, to what God wanted me to do, you know, because I kept praying about what I should pray for. And so I finally got to this point where I put my hands on it, and I'm trying to think of what to pray, and I felt God was saying, don't pray your words, pray mine. I don't know what those are. 
So what am I supposed to do? And I thought, well, he must be talking scripture. So I thought, okay, I'm in front of a closed door. There must be a scripture about a closed door. So I took out my phone and I Googled it because, you know, you can use Google for more than finding cat videos. And, and I Googled it and I, I said, oh, closed door and bang. And there were like 16 different verses popped up. And one popped up in a very weird place. It popped up in the book of Revelation. Now, I hate the book of Revelation. I got to tell you, it scares me. I don't, I, it, it, it hurts my head and it scares me both because it's talking about the end of the world. And so I never go into Revelation. And I start like, oh, let me find something Isaiah or a Psalm or something. But I just felt like I'm, I'm copping out here. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I shouldn't be afraid of Revelation. I'm asking for Revelation. I shouldn't be afraid of it. So I kind of hesitantly scrolled back down to Revelation and clicked on that verse. I didn't know what it was. I just knew it was there. So I clicked on it. And this came up, and it uh, kind of blew me away. So this is what this scripture says. And this is what I actually read out loud with one hand on the door uh, a couple months ago. These are the words of him who is holy and true. That's Jesus, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I just felt like God was saying a lot of stuff to me in that, you know, moment. It was really a very emotional moment for me because I'm like, whoa, you know. Uh, and here's what's really weird about that. I prayed this prayer, and that day I got a call from the Boston Presbyterian Church. You guys know the whole story there because they wanted us to buy this building and we went over there and everything looked like was going to happen. And then somebody, a person, one person stepped up and kind of backstabbed us through back channels and that's why we didn't get the building. Those of you who know the story know it. If not, I'll tell you all later. I don't want to drag into it now. But here's what's weird. Here God gave me really clear directive and really clear scripture. And somehow I missed it because I was mad at that guy for stopping us from getting the church that I was sure God had placed for us. But it couldn't have been God's church because he told me right here. He said, I'm going to put before you a door that no one can shut. So if this other church was from God, no one could have shut it, but somebody did. So it wasn't from God. But instead of me realizing that, I got mad at this person and started praying harder, you know, for a place that God kind of already told me wasn't mine. You know how stupid we get sometimes because we just get locked on something that makes so much sense to us. It just seemed like everything seemed right except for the fact God exactly told me what he was going to give me. He was going to give me a building that no one could stop. No man could shut that door, he said. Well, one man shut the other door. And instead of, oh, okay, cool, Lord, not there? Cool, okay, I'll go look for it. Instead of that, I kept fighting it, you know, for two months. But I'm finally done with that because that can't be from God. There's also something else that he showed me here. Uh, he says, I know you have little strength. Okay, first of all, amen, praise the Lord. He knows we have little strength because, you know, we have little strength. Tomorrow I'll have a little more than th this number here tomorrow. You know, we have 40 people or so coming. That's not a very big church. Uh, we're a little church. We have little strength. We can't do any building. I had a banker sit and tell me, yeah, you're not going to get a building. Impossible, he told me. I can't get any building on our strength. I can't. I need God to do it. I know that. I know I do. And so he says, I see that you have little strength. But I think he's also telling us, and you're going to have little strength. I mean, I think he's actually declaring what we're going to be. We're going to be a chapel. We're not going to be a church. You know, I think I named this place, but I don't think I do it anymore. I think, I think God named it. Chapel definition is a little church. We're going to be a little church, but, he says, 
here's what I need you to do because I'm going to take care of everything. Don't worry about that. I can open doors for you. That's not a problem. I got this. I, you don't need a lot of strength. This is what's great about serving the Lord. You don't need the strength because he, he has it. I don't need to be great because God's great, right? As long as Jesus is involved, I don't need to, I don't need to worry, right? <coughs> I can't even screw it up. No man, not even me, can shut that door. Even I can't screw this up. Hallelujah. <clears throat> but here's the deal. I'm doing this, he said, because you've kept my word and you have never denied my name. So that's very important. We need to make sure that every week we have a song about Jesus in here. Because this is Jesus speaking. The one who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, this is Jesus. And he says, here's why I'm watching you, Spirit Chapel. Here's why I'm going to bless you, Spirit Chapel. Because you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep doing that. And that's how we will know that he's going to take us where we need to go. The door that no other man can shut. Okay, so uh, in the time I have left, I want to just go through essential Jesus. Last week, I used a prayer of Jesus to talk about what's essential to know about God. This week, I'm going to reverse it. I'm going to take a scripture that God spoke through a prophet in, in, in the Old Testament, Isaiah, to describe Jesus. So I'm going to say, here's what you need to know about Jesus. Here's what you have to know as you take this out. And, and the reason I know this is important is because when Jesus Christ decided to describe himself and announce his ministry, he went and he picked this scripture up and he used it. So this is uh, from, the, from the gospel of Luke, although this shows up in other gospels as well. <clears throat> he went into Nazareth, that's where he's from, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. Now, I should point out that not everybody was allowed to stand up and read. You couldn't just walk into a synagogue, which, think about that. You know, <laughs> I'll tell you what, you couldn't do that in Spirit Chapel. <laughs> I just want to start reading things. No, I don't think so. If I don't know you. He, so they knew who he was. And even though he had not yet declared his ministry, they knew he was somebody who understood Scripture at a, d at a deeper level than most people. And so they're going to allow him to be a reader in the synagogue. So he already had, as was his custom, so he'd done it before. And they let him do it before. This was nothing that shocked anybody. Oh, Jesus, the carpenter, is now going to read the scripture. This probably should have shocked them. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And I want to stop there, because have you ever seen these scrolls? Now, the scrolls were written with zero punctuation. Zero. I mean, there wasn't a period. It would just simply stop one and keep going on to the next, although they actually went this way because they went right to left, right? And, they, and when they ended one scroll, they would keep up going on the next. Like Isaiah went in, they'd just pick up the next prophet and go because scrolls were so expensive. They couldn't waste any of it. There was zero white space. And these big, long scrolls. When, when a rabbi was going to read out a scroll, he would work finding that scripture the night before. You know, so he'd know exactly where it was and he would mark it and he would put something there so that he could get to it quickly the next day. Somebody hands Jesus a scroll and goes, zip here. All right, that should have scared them right there. Like he's faster than Google, zip right here. And that's because he wrote the scroll. He knew exactly where it was. So he finds the place where it is written and then he starts reading this. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls it up, gives it back to him, and everyone's staring at him. 
Now that's interesting to me. I don't know why. Maybe because the Spirit of the Lord was there and everybody understood something really important was happening here. Or maybe there's just still a maze. He found that so fast. You know, wow, that was quick. But they're looking at him and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah is here. This is his announcement that I am the Messiah, the Messiah is here, and the good news has hit the earth right this very moment. From this moment on, I'm going to start preaching the gospel. It didn't go well, by the way. They tried to kill him for it. Um, so he ends up going over to Galilee. But he announces it there. So this is very important. Jesus has thought about this. He's had 30 years to prepare, and he knows exactly how his ministry is to begin, which is why when Mary came to him and said, we're running out of wine at the wedding feast, he says, it's not ready yet. I'm supposed to do this at the temple. And you know how that happened. So you have to listen to mom. But anyway, so, so that's, that, he's thought about this for some time. He knows exactly what he wants. They handed the, the scroll of Isaiah. He won the scroll of Isaiah. He went exactly to the verse he wanted to. And he proclaimed this. This is how he knows. This is who I am. This is who I am. I am here. This is me. Now, in case you're thinking, well, that was kind of coincidence, he does it again later, not much later, a little bit later, about a year and a half later. What happens is this, uh, John the Baptist sends his disciples. When he's in prison, he heard the works of Christ, Jesus, and he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Or shall we look for someone else? Okay, that's a weird question for John to ask because if you remember, John, first of all, is Jesus' cousin. Second of all, John baptized Jesus. Third of all, when John baptized Jesus, a spirit came out of heaven and said, this is my son. And as he saw Jesus approaching, he says, here comes the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. All that happened in John's life. A couple years later, he says, wait, are, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? He actually sends his disciples and asks that question. Why? Well, first of all, He's in prison, so he can't come himself. That's why he sends the disciples. But here's the problem. The Jews thought Messiah was a king. They thought he was a warrior who was going to restore Jerusalem to where it belonged in, on, on the kingdom of earth. They thought he was going to overthrow Caesar. That's what they thought the Messiah was. What they didn't understand was who the Messiah really was. So when John sees Jesus doing all these works, must be the Messiah... Why am I still in jail? I'm his cousin. I've been obedient. I did nothing wrong. I'm here on trumped up charges. The Messiah should be kicking me out of jail any moment now. You know, what's going on? Why am I still in jail? And so this is a little kind of thing saying, um, are you coming for me, cousin? Are you really the Messiah? Are you going to let them kill me? What's going to happen here? And so Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. And here's what you need to report. report. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, this is what you're seeing, right? These are all things the Messiah are going to do, right? And then he adds this at the end of it. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I'm going to get back to that verse in a minute. So twice now, Jesus has basically gone to the scripture in Isaiah to declare who he is. He paraphrases it here, but he basically is repeating it. He's saying, this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is what I'm doing. Therefore, I am the Messiah. Now, let me walk through what we know about his sayings. First of all, he says he's anointed. That, to me, seems a little bit weird. Why is God anointing God? 
Anointing is a blessing of God on you, right? There's the Holy Spirit coming in and a blessing on you. It's like tickling yourself, right? How do you do that? How do you bless yourself? You don't bless yourself. How does God bless himself? Why is he anointed? Well, the reason he's anointed is he has the Holy Spirit upon him. Well, why did Isaiah say he was going to be anointed? Why did he say that he's going to have the Holy Spirit upon him? Well, he said that because without the Holy Spirit, he can't do what he has to do. And we know this because in Philippians, Paul writes this, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant and being made in light to some man. He says he, he was God, but he took all the God out of him and emptied himself, and he became a regular man. Sent here is earth, pure and perfect, but a regular man. He cannot do any great works without the Holy Spirit's anointing upon him. That was the deal. He came here to be part of us. And we see that. We even see that in the scriptures. It actually tells us that. In another place in Luke, uh, on one of these days, he was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal. Jesus couldn't just do it. The power of the Lord was there. The spirit was there. The spirit was there to heal. And that's why he could heal. That's the only reason he could heal because the spirit of the Lord was on upon him. Anointing was a big thing. The great thing about it is the anointing is now on us. So in 2 Corinthians, he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God and who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The anointing is now on you. This is actually Jesus saying that later he says, you're going to continue my work. And the anointing comes to us. But that's how he's able to do it. Also says freedom to those in bondage. Now, of course, that can be physical. That can also be spiritual. Now, he also will say freedom for those oppressed. That's not the same thing. Now, let me give you the difference between bondage and oppressed. And I know that in the world, you can have both. But in the spiritual world, this is true. Bondage is your fault. If you're in bondage and you can't get out of it, that's your fault. You're the only reason you're in bondage. If you've got some sin in your life that you can't get rid of, if you've got an addiction that you can't kick, if you've got depression that you can't get over, you've got um, you know, anger issues, you, you're, you're afraid all the time, you're scared, um, whatever it is, that's your fault because you've allowed it to have power in your life. You're in bondage to it because you've allowed it to have that power. Oppression can happen to you no matter what. You can be oppressed by doing nothing wrong. You know, the devil's just after you and things are happening and you can be oppressed. But in the spiritual world, bondage, you did. And Jesus talks about this when he walks he, on earth. He's, uh, he's talking to Jews who believe in him. Now, these are believers. They're kind of following him around because they're liking what he's saying. And he says, you know, if you really continue my word, then you're disciples. Here's how, here's how we know that you're my disciples. You, you do what I say. If you continue on in my word. Uh, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And here is one of the funniest phrases in the Bible. They answered him, no, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been enslaved by anyone. Okay, Abraham's descendants have been enslaved all the time. They were enslaved in, in Egypt. They were enslaved in Babylon. They're enslaved right now. As they speak that, they're slaves to the Roman Empire. It's amazing to me how people in bondage will not know or admit they're in bondage. I'm fine. I'm good. 
little something here, but I'm good. I'm not in bondage. I'm not. Don't worry. I've never been a slave to anybody. So how are you going to make me free? Because I'm not a slave. That's what they're saying. I'm cool. I got this. I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. And Jesus says, you know what? I say everyone who commits sins is a slave to that sin. If you don't realize that, then and you haven't been paying attention, he says. And the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son does. And if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. He says, I came to take you out of the bondage, but I can't take you out of the bondage if you won't pay attention. If you won't even pay attention and you're saying, I, everything's fine, then I can't take, I can't take you out of bondage because you, you don't even realize you're in it. You haven't gotten to the point. You may get to a point eventually where you're sickened by what's going on in your life and you want out. You're not there yet. And until you get there, I can't help you. But if I set you free, you need to know this. You're truly free. Truly, truly free. Okay. Freedom from oppression is different. Oppresses as people are on them. You know, you can be oppressed as a people. You can be oppressed as a person. Some of us have oppressive jobs. Some of us have oppressive families, oppressive relationships. You start feeling things kind of weighing down on you. You can feel that oppression. That's different. You may have done nothing wrong, but it's continuing on. You have no way out. And then Jesus talks about that. He was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. 18 years she was sick because of a demon, a spirit, who had oppressed her, not possessed her, oppressed her, right? Not her fault necessarily, but she was bent over double, she couldn't straight up. We would call that uh, severe osteoporosis. That'd be our medical diagnosis for her. She was crunched over, she couldn't, but for 18 years, she's been that way. Doesn't even know why, can't stand up straight. That's a spirit oppressing her. Now, let me just be clear, not all osteoporosis is a demon. I'm not saying that, but, but I'm saying in this particular case, that's what caused it. Demons can cause sickness. They can. They don't always, and not all sickness are demons, but demons can cause sickness. And she was bent over double, couldn't straighten up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and says, woman, you're freed from your sickness. Now he did that because he saw she was oppressed. He didn't need to talk to her like he does sometimes about confession and do you want to be healed and things like this because if you got yourself into it, you have to be part of the process getting yourself out. She was just simply oppressed. She was demonically oppressed. And he says, you're freed because I have authority over those demons and I'm telling them they're not allowed here anymore. So he kicked them out. Now you would think everybody would love that, but of course some people didn't. As he laid his hands on her, immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official was indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And he began to say to the crowd, I love this, he starts giving them instructions. Hey, there are six days you can come here and get healed. On the seventh, rest. So go ahead, be bent over in your infirmary and rest. Don't get healed. Last thing we want you doing is getting healed on the Sabbath. So come during one of those other six days. Don't come on the Sabbath day. That's a wrong time to get healed. Just stay away. God doesn't want to do any healing on the Sabbath. Go away. Uh, just go ahead and stay in your infirmary and rest. Rest in your infirmary, bent over. And Jesus gets upset. He answers them and says, look, you hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? You just let your, 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 your donkeys die? Oh, that's work though. Oh, but that's okay because it's your donkey and it's your ox. And so we're going to make exceptions, right, for that. This woman, a daughter of Abraham, she's a Jew, Satan has bound for 18 years. Should she not be released from this bondage on Sabbath? You untie your donkey, but you won't let me untie her. That's what he's saying. She's oppressed, but I came here to free those from oppression. 
And so he does. And of course, they don't like him. And he goes on and he says, sight for the blind, hearing for the deaf, lame healed, unclean made clean. All these are physical and they're also spiritual. Sometimes people are just blind. They can't see. Some people don't hear because they're not listening. They don't see because they're not looking. They're not paying attention. They're just going through life. Everything's fine. Their life's not fine. They don't even know it. They're going to crash and burn. They don't even know it. And so we see this going on as well. In, in Mark, the disciples uh, were, were going, and this is kind of an interesting story because Jesus is going to use the term, you know, you, you have eyes but you don't see, and you have ears but you don't hear, on his disciples. And we know he sometimes says that to Pharisees and stuff, but he's actually going to say that to the disciples right now. And what happens here is kind of funny. Um, so let me set this up. He has just fed 5,000 people. And they're getting ready to, um, the people want to make him king. And he, so he's getting away from them. They're going to get on a boat and they're going to leave. But before they leave, the Pharisees start pe- pestering with all these little questions, these little procedural questions about how you're supposed to uh, operate in things. And he's like so tired of them. You know, just, you're so caught up in all these little religious games. And so they get in the boat and they're taking off. And he turns to his disciples and he says, uh, you know what, you need to uh, make sure that you don't let the Pharisees get to you. Disciples now had forgotten to bring bread with them except one loaf. Now they had 12 baskets, remember, they picked up from there. And they took one loaf out and they didn't bring any other bread with them. So they're in a boat and they're leaving. And now Jesus says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of that of Herod. What he's saying is don't let this crap get into your religion. Now I don't know if you ever baked bread. Believe it or not, I have. I know it seems weird, but that's only because I have a bread maker. It's a little tiny thing, and you buy all this stuff, you put in it, and you press a button, and you come back later, and the bread's made. It is, it is a miracle machine. Now, it's not, not a microwave. You know, it takes hours, but, but it, you can make bread in this thing. And you take all this, measure out these big things of, you know, special bread flour. I found out you had these special bread flour. You put it in there, and then you go buy the yeast packet, and there's these little tiny things. They're foil packets. look like a tea, like they, you, know, you rip off these little foils and you don't even put all of it, just a little tiny sprinkle in And you put all this, you know, flour in there's this little tiny sprinkle of yeast. I don't know if you've ever done this. And it's like, that doesn't even matter. I mean, it's, it's like little tiny, like, then you couldn't even see it. And yet that's what makes it rise. If you don't put that in there, you don't get bread. You get a lump of like slop. Tried it. I tried, I tried these things. So that's, and he's saying, a little bit of yeast will, ruin you. yeast will ruin you. Don't let any of this crap that the Pharisees are trying to put on you, this religious crap garbage, don't let it in because it'll make you puff up with pride like, like bread. It makes you puff up and you don't want to let that in. And so he's, he's trying to warn them because he's just had it with the Pharisees, right? They're on the boat, they're getting away. And I love what happens. Uh, he tells them that and he goes to sit down and they all start talking amongst themselves as he's mad at us because we didn't bring enough bread. That's what this means. We didn't bring enough bread. And then you're sitting there, one loaf. Did you only bring one loaf? We had like, I know, I know. You know, you can hear Peter, you know, I could eat. I don't know about you guys, but I could eat right now. I could go for some more bread. And they're sitting there talking about bread. You know, he was trying to make this great spiritual lesson to them. He must get so tired of it sometimes. And so he hears them and he says, are you talking about bread? Are, 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 Are you kidding me right now? You guys are talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts that hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And then I love what he adds. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? 
I've gone through this before. Do you remember what I did with bread? You think I care? I could take that one loaf of bread and sink the ship with how much bread I can make from it. I don't need you to have brought bread. Are you not paying attention to who I am? I'm trying to tell you something important and you're forgetting the most basic thing about me, of who I am. Sometimes we forget who Jesus is. And he's trying to talk to us and we're not hearing him. He's trying to show us things and we're not seeing him. We're just talking over top of him to someone else. They didn't hear Jesus speak to them because they're too busy bumping each other. Hey, did you bring bread? No, I didn't bring bread. What about you? Did you bring bread? They're talking amongst themselves. Jesus is there trying to speak to them and they're too busy talking to each other to even hear him. They don't even see what he's trying to say and they have completely forgotten what he's already shown them. This is the problem, you see, when, when we take our eyes off of him. And finally he says, look, I'm also here to proclaim the time of God's favor. And we see this show up in many scriptures, but I want to also show this one in, in, in Ephesians. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. Think about that for a minute. He's saying, God could do more than you can ask or think. Really? Because I can think a lot. I don't know about you. I don't know if I have enough nerve to ask, but I can think of a lot of things. He says, no, God God can do more than that. According to the power within us, he's got the glory set up to do it. He can do abundantly more. Abundantly more. That means like more than you can imagine. He can do more with what you have than you have ever thought to ask. He can do more with every talent you own. He can do more with everything you possess. He can do more with everything you have at your disposal. He can do more with all of that. That's who he is. This is what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. I multiply things. I don't add. I multiply. I I can do more with what you have than you can do. And that's what I came here to show you, abundantly more. But you're so busy just talking amongst yourselves about stupid things that don't really matter and you're not paying attention to me. But what Jesus is trying to get through to us is he didn't come here to make our life here on earth a little better. He said, I came here to completely change your life here on earth to prepare you for the next life. My focus isn't on the bread, it's on the lives. My focus isn't on, on these things, these, even the miracles I'm doing, the point of them isn't the miracle. The point of them is to reach the person. That's always the thing with Jesus. is always trying to reach that person somehow, some way. And, and yet, what we focus on are the little things. God, why didn't I get that miracle? Why aren't you doing this? Why haven't you done that? Why does that person have this and I don't? See, we're focused on all these things. And he says, if your eyes aren't seeing what I need you to see, your ears are not hearing what you need you to hear, you have forgotten who I am and who I came here for, which is taking me back down this one line and we're going to be finished. But he says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's a weird thing to throw at the end of that, that reply to John, right? He's saying here, look, I'm not the Messiah you want me to be. I'm just not. I'm not a king who came to restore Israel to the, to the throne. I'm not, I didn't come here to take over from Augustus Caesar. I'm not a conqueror like that. I came here to conquer death so everybody can come. Not, not just Israel, but all people. That's what I came here for. 
And I came here to make your life better insofar as I'm going to show you what life with me is like. And that's what I'm here for. And if you can remember that, and don't take offense at that, don't get upset with me because I'm not a physical Messiah, I'm a spiritual Messiah, then you'll be blessed. Because John, you're going home. And you're going to like it there better than here. Your life here was hard. Your life there is what you want. We've already set it up for you. You've got a palace waiting for you. You don't want to stay here. It's just you can't see that. So he'd already answered that. I mean, if, if, if John had been paying attention and John had remembered all the things, and he would know that he was the Messiah and he would understand that the Messiah was greater than he could have thought because he wasn't here for just a moment. He wasn't here to live 80 years as a king. He was here to live forever as the Lord of Lords. Jesus came here for these reasons, to set the people free from bondage. The stuff that's holding you, the stuff that holds you back, the sin in your life, he wants to set you free. The things that you, I don't know if you ever feel oppressed, but sometimes I do. He says, I've come to push that back as well. I've come to let your eyes see me and your ears hear my word. I've come to take the, the things where you're, you're limping along in your own might and power, and I'm going to take that away. I'm going to make you walk with me. I'm going to proclaim the good news to you, and I'm going to show you a world that you've never thought of before, greater and more abundant than you could imagine. Not here. This world's tainted and trashed. I'm going to show you a better world than you could have imagined. That's what Jesus came to do. This is what he told us at the beginning. This is what he told us throughout his ministry. This is what I'm here for. I'm here to set you free in me. So what we have to understand is that Jesus is still Lord. He won't always do what you expect, but he's still the Messiah and he's still Lord. He still came here just for you. Would you pray with me, please?